Good morning. What happens when you look in a mirror? You see yourself, right? <laughs> sometimes we like what we see and sometimes we don't. But what we see in the mirror is a reflection of what we should look like, right? Um, has anybody ever said to you, you look just like your father, your mother, your brother, your sister? Yeah. Um, and it's funny because people will often say to me, you look just like your mother. Well, I sort of do look like my mother. But then other people say, no, you look just like your father. Well, sometimes I look just like my father. This is my mother and my father. Which one do I look more like? The dog, right? <laughs> um, no, I, I think sometimes people see different things in us. When a baby's born, we always try to figure out, oh, does he look more like his mother or like his father? Um, we were recently at a family reunion for my husband's side of the family at, for his brother's birthday. And I'll tell you, the two of them are spitting images of their father. Their two sisters are spitting images of their mother. There's, there's no question. The boys are definitely dad's sons. The girls are definitely mom's daughters. My kids, Katie, they often say, oh, she looks just like you, especially when they look at our high school graduation pictures. Uh, we do look a lot alike. But then when they see pictures of my husband, especially the kids at school, they Nick, he looks just like you. And then they see a picture of my husband. And no, he looks just like him. And who's this guy over here with the beard? He doesn't look like any of you. <laughs> so... We do. We, we, we look like and we reflect our relatives. Sometimes we reflect the things they do or the ways they are, the, the things they think. Um, so if we have generous parents or grandparents, we tend to reflect that in ourselves and are generous as well. Um, we also, if we have a thing that we enjoy doing that we've learned from a a parent or a sibling or a relative, we reflect that person when we're doing those things. Now, there's one person that we all reflect. God. We may all look like different people. We may all be from different families. We may all like and do different things. But when people look at us and they see my parents, when they look at me, do they see God as well? Do they see God in the ways that I'm loving and caring and generous? Do they see that in us all? Because that's what our goal is. A lot of people aren't actually going to see Jesus. They're not actually going to see God. But they can see them through us. So we reflect that in who we are, in the ways that we in the ways that we act, in the ways that we share what we have, in the ways that we love. So, we have a pretty amazing God who's given us the Holy Spirit so that that can happen and be reflected through who we are and others can see Jesus through us. 
So when somebody says, you look just like your father, or you look just like your mother, or you look just like your brother, let's hope they're also saying, you look just like your heavenly father. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given us your spirit, that you have given us you to reflect in who we are. We all look different, but we all look like you. And we thank you for that. So help us to be loving and caring and sharing and generous with what you have given us because it's to your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in case you were wondering what was happening there. I had a sermon in my folder, but I didn't put in the right one. <laughs> so I had to go down and get it. Anyway, okay, let's pray, because clearly I need it. Heavenly Father, thanks again for today. Thank you that you have a sense of humor and that you desire that we bring you our best, but also you're not really a perfectionist in the way that we are. And uh, we thank you for that, that we can come to you just as we are. So we do, and we want to learn from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you can see that this sermon is called The Good Life, and I am curious to know, what is your definition of the good life? And please don't give me the expected church answer. What do you actually think? Shalom? Okay, that's a church answer, though. But it is the way you think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what else? Or maybe, what does society tell us is the good life? Prosperity? Happiness? Motorcycles? <laughs> Go ahead, Brandon. Raising a family? Right? Nice. The smile on your face as you paddle your canoe across the pond yesterday. Yeah, yesterday was a gorgeous day, and Paul and I were outside gardening, and Paul was making this, he's ma you maybe saw on Facebook, he's making these giant raised beds, and he was filling up the first one, um, and I was pulling out mint. The previous tenants of our house, <coughs> my parents, planted mint in the garden, <laughs> and so, and it is, it can't be there anymore, so I spent my day on my hands and knees pulling mint out by the roots, but it was actually kind of okay, because it was beautiful outside, and I was doing, you know, we're both doing good things, and we're kind of working together, but we're also kind of doing our own thing, and, and I was like, ah, oh, this is, this is the good life, this is just, you know, being able to be outside, and getting ready to grow your own food, and and having the, the place to do it, and oh, this is great. So I'm not going to stand here and tell you that any of the things that you mentioned are not part of the good life. They're good. They can be part of shalom, like you mentioned, Tim. Um, but of course, there's always an angle on the good life. Um, there's a biblical angle. There has been a version of the good life 
since the beginning. Maybe the, that term hasn't existed since the beginning, but people have always been seeking a good life, right? That's kind of normal. And people have tried different ways to achieve it since our ancestors left Eden. We're basically looking for Eden. This is one of the reasons why we know that there's some kind of truth in the stories of the Bible, especially that one. Because nobody here thinks, oh yeah, everything about life the way it is is just great. Right? If somewhere in our species history there hadn't been a really perfect, shalom-filled, good life, we wouldn't have a concept of it. Our brains wouldn't be able to imagine something that we hadn't somehow in our ancestors experienced. So, there has always been a longing for this, and the longing is actually good, because that's what God intends for us. But, we try different ways, different people try different ways, because we haven't lived in Eden, none of us have lived in Eden, we don't know exactly what it's like, and the way that people got kicked out of Eden, it, those are the things we keep trying to do things ourselves. In our American culture, we don't believe anymore that one size fits all, right? About pretty much anything. And there are some good reasons for this. We have, for example, constitutional freedoms, which allow people to practice things the way they believe and what they, um, a certain amount of liberty to, to do things the way that seems best to them. Um, also, religions, including Christianity, get interpreted through cultural lenses. So we all come from some culture, we're Christians, but, but we all come from, an, another, uh, from a culture, and we read the Bible and we interact with the truths of our faith and our faith, through these lenses that our culture has given us that we often aren't even aware of. Um, and so we, get, we interpret our religion through our bigger cultural lenses, and sometimes we think that we're living a certain way because our holy book said to live that way, but really it's the way our culture a long time ago interpreted our holy book. So here's a really old one um, as an example. Anti-Semitism. I wouldn't say this church specifically is anti-Semitic, but in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's a portion where um, there were some Jewish background Christians who told all the people, if you are going to be a real follower of the Jewish Messiah, you have to become Jewish before you can follow Jesus. And they put all kinds of rules and legalism on the Gentile Christians, and the Apostle Paul wrote a whole bunch about that and said... That's not, that's not true. You don't have to become a Jewish person. You don't have to ha be circumcised. You don't have to observe the specifically Jewish festivals to still worship the Messiah and follow Jesus. So that, that's in the Bible, but the way that many early Gentile background Christians interpreted that was well, the Jews are the ones who put Jesus up on the cross, and they killed him, and so the Jews are bad. 
And so the history of the church has a whole lot of really evil anti-Semitism in it because a particular group of people at a particular time who had some good ideas about other things, but not about this, um, interpreted the Bible in a certain way, and it got passed down and passed down and passed down. And so then, especially in the Middle Ages, there was all of this Jew Jewish people are bad and discrimination and oppression and that kind of thing. So that's an example. Other things happen. But so these are... This is another reason why, in this country, we don't believe one size fits all, because we know that our culture influences how we even receive inspired scripture. And we also have this value. Our Declaration of Independence says that everybody is free to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we have an expression, I guarantee, most people in this congregation have said this at least one time about somebody sometime in their life. As long as they're happy. When do we say this? We say this when somebody's doing something that we don't agree with, but it doesn't look like it's hurting anybody else, and so we say, well, as long as they're happy. You can pretty much do whatever you want as long as you're happy. But there are a few questions <laughs> that always pop into my mind when somebody says that, even though I've probably said it too. First of all, are they really happy? And second, for how long? Kathleen, if you had posted that meme that you shared on Instagram yesterday a little earlier, I might have tried to put it on here. It was good. Ask Kathleen to show it to you on her phone. It'd be great. Um, it's related to this. Anyway, this fact that it is very, that we don't believe that one size fits all, that we don't believe there's one way to the good life, we don't believe there's one way to be happy, makes it really hard for at least some of us to say that there is only one way to the truly good life, or there is only one way to God. For example, when we were talking about supporting Kathleen's ministry with college students early on, somebody said, she was talking about her ministry, and somebody said, so like, are you trying to convert these students? And the reason that question was asked, I think, is because our culture says that's bad. Don't try to convert people to your point of view. Let them live life the way that they feel is right. Our whole society says trying to convert somebody from one point of view to another point of view is bad unless the society is trying to convert because, sorry, that happens. <laughs> but, and here's the thing, it is bad to try to convert somebody from one point of view to another point of view if the only reason you're doing it is because you are trying to be right. If you're just trying to be right, I don't really care about this person's well-being. I just know I'm right. That's not winsome, for one thing. And it doesn't, it doesn't make for good disciples. It's not helpful. But if we 
genuinely care about other people's well-being, and if we've experienced for ourselves God's grace and the good news that Jesus brings, and if we believe Jesus is what he says he is, the way and the truth and the life, and nobody gets to the Father except through him, and we trust that God is the source of life and all that's truly good, then it is good to try to introduce people to Jesus and encourage them to follow him. <coughs> In fact, <coughs> excuse me, it might be bad, that is, selfish and dishonest, not to. This doesn't mean you need to stand on a street corner. Everybody has different ways of introducing people to Jesus. But if you have experienced the goodness of Jesus, it is kind of self-centered and not very honest not to try to introduce people to him in some way. So, here we have the Apostle Paul. He, we know he used to not believe in Jesus as the Messiah at all, and he was guilty of getting Christians killed and imprisoned, and then God miraculously, God, God didn't worry about any intermediaries in this case. He just threw him off his horse and said, look, <laughs> cut it out, and you're mine. And so Paul spent the rest of his life introducing people to Jesus. And so in the passage that Kathleen read for us this morning, um, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. He took three, and I did not do the, back, the research to remind myself which of the three missionary journeys this was. But anyway, he's traveling around, and he starts churches in different places all over Asia Minor, which is mostly Turkey, although Athens is in Greece, you might know. Um, and then he, he would start a church, but he wouldn't stay there for very long. I think the longest place he stayed anywhere was Ephesus. And then he would turn over the church leadership to local leaders so they could lead. And in this case, he's going to Athens, and he's gone to Athens for the first time. And he notices something, which is that they have a statue to an unknown God. Here's a good question first. Why do people worship anybody, anything? It's how we're built. Why do you suppose? We want help outside of ourselves. Okay, something tangible? Go ahead, Brian. We have questions that are bigger than us, and so we want to take them somewhere. Um, and worshiping can be a way to honor what is or who is bigger. So Christians and Jewish people, um, and to an extent Muslim people, believe that we can know that God who is bigger. Um, but not all religions do, and other religions have different ways of interpreting this. Anyway. One reason, I think, and this goes a little bit to what Barbara was saying um, and to what David was saying, people 
worship because, and even a little to what you were saying, Brandon, people worship because we, yes, we're hardwired to, but also we know we're not big enough to manage everything and we're all looking for the good life. Right? Somebody needs to give it to us because we can't do it all ourselves. This is definitely why pagan religions developed um, with multiple gods. You know, there's the gods of the weather and the gods of fertility and the gods of the forest and the gods of the fields and the gods of the water and, and all of these things. And so, and the Athenians, you might have heard of Greek mythology. There's a gazillion gods. And so the Athenians definitely believed, they were not atheists. They believed in gods, lots of them. Historically, people have tried to achieve the good life through their gods. So they would have certain rituals that they would do in hopes of successful crop growing or having healthy children or successful business dealings. And we should note, because we need to be honest, we need to always be honest with ourselves about ourselves as individuals, but also as, a, like, as the church, the big church. Um, this even happened in the past and still happens today in the church. Some churches pray to saints for specific things. Some churches do name it and claim it. I claim this in the name of Jesus about things that maybe Jesus didn't say anything about. Um, or sometimes we do all kinds of special practices in hopes that we'll get closer to God or we serve a lot because we hope that God will give us a certain outcome. All of these things, they're, these are basically good things in themselves, except for maybe a couple of them. Um, serving God is good, and serving other people is good, and praying is good, and doing spiritual practices is good. All those things are good, but they can become the focus, and they can become a way of trying to manipulate God to give us the good life. The pagan Athenians were no exception to this trying to get gods to give them the good life. They made statues to every god they had ever heard of, and then they made this catch-all monument in case they missed any. Let's cover all the bases here. They really want the good life. And actually, in Athens, they kind of had it on a material level. The Apostle Paul does, in this situation, as he comes into Athens and he looks around and he sees all these idols, he does what Kathleen described for us on the Sunday after Easter. He doesn't call out their idolatry. He doesn't go in there and say, he is, I think the verses right before what Kathleen read this morning say that he is upset when he sees all the idols. But he doesn't say that to the people in Athens. He doesn't start ranting and scolding them for worshiping things that aren't God. He doesn't do that at all. He notices the one thing about their culture that he has something to say about, that they can agree on. There is a God who's bigger than all this, who can do something about it. He affirms their search for the good life. Because that's something that's built into all of us. We are hardwired to worship, but we're also hardwired to want the good life. 
So he goes into the city, he pays attention, and he notices that monument to an unknown God. And he says, basically, listen, I can tell you about that God, and he is the guaranteed source of life and goodness and meaning. Then he describes this God and the life they can have through him in such a way that they will know that this God that Paul's talking about is the only God worth worshiping. They won't need any of the rest of the gods that they have all these statues to if they get to know this one. So Paul indirectly undermines all the idols without saying anything about it. This is the way, Mandalorian fans. <laughs> so, in, this is how he, he outlines this. In verse 24, he basically says, God made everything. You can look this up if you want to. I'm paraphrasing, but it's, again, it's Acts 17, 22 through 31. So in verse 24, he says, God made everything. God has authority over everything. God cannot be contained in any structure that we humans make. So the Athenians have, they, there are still some of these buildings, the ruins of these buildings in Athens, um, where they were assuming this, the Parthenon, this is where the gods live when they're not on Mount Olympus. Um, they would, there was this sense that the gods were actually physically located in these buildings. And Paul's saying, this God is bigger than that. He can't fit in your little building. In verse 25, he says, God does not need anything from us. He says he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So this is a, a kind of backhanded way of taking down the idols a few notches. Because the pagan idea at the time, and this goes back into the Old Testament times, the gods, humans were slaves of the gods. And the humans needed to provide food for the gods to eat, and the humans needed to provide whatever, houses for them to live in, and all kinds of things. And the Apostle Paul is saying, the real God, the true God, the one God that you don't know yet, but I'm telling you about him, doesn't need anything from you. He gives everything life and breath and everything else. In verses 26 to 27, he says, look, everybody has the same humanity, the same ancestry, and whether or not a nation acknowledges him, he gives them places to live and ways to find out about him and reach out to him. And so then, the Apostle Paul quotes two poets, two Greek poets that these people would have known, they would have known these poets probably better than they knew the Hebrew scriptures, because they're not Jewish. And he is using these quotes to say, here, this is something that we can agree on in writings that you respect. This is how I can show you that God puts little glimmers of himself, even in your, even in your poets, even in your writings, even in your culture, so that if you look, you can actually find him. And the two quotes are, for in him we live and move and have our being. We exist in God. We can't exist apart from God. And we are his offspring. We are created in God's image. 
So, verse 29, if we are God's offspring, then why would we think we can somehow control God or manipulate God or that God is somehow containable in our buildings or that we could contain God in some metal or stone or wooden statue? We are greater than those things. How can we fit God into those things? In verse 29, Paul is pointing out, we can actually know something of the greatness of God just by observing how amazing humans are. Humans make these buildings. Humans made those statues. Humans are amazing. And God is bigger than that. Like Brandon pointed out, we have our limitations. And we can do... And we can do a lot of amazing things. God is even greater. In verse 30, Paul says that God used to ignore, or in our translation it says overlook, the false spiritual allegiances that Gentile people had because they didn't know any better. All these Gentiles used to worship all these gods because they didn't know anything different. They didn't have the one true God come to them like God came to the Israelites. They just knew there were some kind of deities and they were doing the best they could. So Paul says God used to ignore that. They didn't have direct access to direct knowledge about the one true God. But now God wants all people to belong to his family. Not because he needs slaves. Not because he needs them to do things for him like the pagan false gods did. Not because... He needs to be flattered, not because he needs a building to live in, not because he needs to be fed, not because he wants to be right or let his people be self-satisfied that they were right. God wants all people to belong to his family because he is a good God who loves us and wants us to enjoy and not just endure the life that we receive from him. So a little note about endurance. There's a whole lot in the New Testament about how we are going to have to endure trials and suffering, sometimes especially as Christians, not before we become Christians. And we are going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Um, but I do want to acknowledge that. This isn't Paul saying, Paul's not saying your life is going to be problem-free as soon as you follow the one true God. That is not it. Suffering comes to all. Everybody in this broken world, we are not in Eden right now. But if we know the one true God, we can experience it with hope and with the companionship of God. That is different than experiencing it without hope and with the need to manipulate it ourselves. And even when we are struggling, if we are being accompanied by God, it is actually possible to enjoy at least glimmers of this good life that he came to give us, even when things aren't as perfect on the surface or even all the way inside as we would like it to be. In verse 31, Paul kind of wraps up this idea of the good life. Because here's another piece of the good life that I think we don't always think about. Justice, right? 
there's a lot of injustice in the world, and that means that there's a whole lot of people not living a great life, either because they are making the injustice happen or because they are experiencing it. And so Paul says God will bring true justice, fully good life for everybody, administered through this one man he chose, who was, of course, Jesus himself. And this man is proof of who God is and of God's ability to make good on his word and his promise, no matter how broken the world is now. God the Father raised the man Jesus, God the Son, from the dead. Jesus suffered the ultimate injustice. He did not deserve to die in any way, shape, or form. If the wages of sin is death, he never sinned. So he didn't, of anybody on the planet ever, in all time, he did not deserve what happened to him. By raising him from the dead, the Father shows how justice, making things right, is the foundation of the kingdom. So we can have and live aspects of the good life in the here and now and look forward to the complete fulfillment of it, of shalom, in the kingdom of God later when Jesus returns. We can choose. There are two options here, basically, because we all want the good life. We can choose to keep on pursuing the good life as an end in itself. The good life itself is the goal. And the good life as defined by the world or by our culture. And that could be material possessions, or it could be perfect relationships, or it could be lots of sex, which isn't always the same thing as perfect relationships, or it could be power over people or power over our circumstances. But we will rarely get it. And if we do, we will always have the anxiety of losing it, and we will most likely not be as happy as we expect. Or we can pursue God as an end in himself, not for what we can get out of him, but for God himself, a God who doesn't need us, but he loves us, a God who made us in his image with value and purpose, every single one of us, a God who leaves traces of himself everywhere so we can find him if we want to, even in the difficult, unhappy and painful circumstances. A God who not only creates life, but restores life, brings back to life. A God who will come and bring real justice to earth one day so that all of us who live and move and have our being in him can live the fully good life with him and each other forever. Let's get started in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have our good at heart. You always have. You created us with a good purpose in mind. And you have honored us by placing us in this broken world to become like you and to love others to you, to introduce people to you. We pray that you will help us more and more to let you change us so that we can experience you more and that we can bring your love and light to the world for your glory and our good.